Hello and welcome to the Imposter Syndrome podcast and you're joined by me, Dr. Samuel Westwood and today's topic is open science. So for those who don't know, open science is a set of reforms that seek to improve the quality of research both in practice and in culture and they address the publish or perish or fund or famine culture and generally make the scholarly enterprise more accessible and transparent to all. Though necessary and worthwhile, advocating and practicing open science is not without its challenges. And to discuss those challenges with me today, I will be joined by Dr. Lucia Tzadzvela, a research associate from Cardiff University, and Dr. Emma Henderson, a research fellow at the University of Surrey. So, both welcome and thank you for joining me today to discuss this really important topic. Thank you for inviting us. It's exciting to be here. So I have lots of things that I want to learn from you both. Uh, one thing that I'm particularly interested in is sort of your story going into open science. So how did you get into open science? Um, I guess, Emma, let's start with you. So for me, I pretty much found out about open research at the same time as I started conducting research. So I took a psychology master's conversion course. Um, this was a return to university after working in industry. Yeah, I'd worked in, in fashion design and sunglasses design and development. Um, and for my master's dissertation, my supervisor suggested that I work on the topic of ego depletion. So this was back in 2016. We hadn't been taught anything about the replication crisis on my course. And I was merrily proceeding as if everything was well. And then I started coming across papers suggesting that or was really not well in ego depletion research. And there were questions about whether the effect existed or at least whether it was as large as what had been reported in, in previous work. So I started to get an idea that there were some problems within psychological research. And simultaneously, I reached out to um, a PhD student, John, John Lurkwin, and asked him to share some materials so that I could use them in my research. And he said, sure. Um, and I suggest that you pre-register your work because it's about ego depletion. And at that time, I, I had no idea what pre-registration meant. I hadn't heard of it. So I Googled it and found a talk on pre-registration and registered reports by Chris Chambers. And I immediately thought, this is the way. It, 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 just, made, it just made sense to me. So I found out kind of about the issues and the solutions at the same time. And I guess like looking back, I feel lucky that I researched ego depletion because it meant that I had this kind of open research mentality from the very beginning. Um, and that certainly galvanized me to then use registered reports to write my PhD thesis. I think I first started uh, learning a little bit more about open research during my undergraduate project, actually, I was introduced by a statistician who was helping me on the project to what we call alternative statistics. So it was the first time I did linear mixed models. And I think it was an opportunity for us to discuss certain issues around p-values, effect sizes, um, p-hacking and concepts like this, which were to me completely novel. So we weren't introduced to anything like that before during my undergraduate degree. And then moving on to my master's, we had a lecture about depression treatments. And I remember I heard 
and the lecturer talk about harking, selector reporting, cherry picking, publication bias, and it's like my mind completely, it was blown. I was um, positive about all the literature that I've been reading on this subject, and then I learned all about the, the questionable research practices the authors have either consciously or unconsciously employed, and I started thinking more about how I could make my own research better in the future. Uh, so I guess that's what got me really, really motivated and interested to start learning more about how to do open research. Now, since then, you've done lots of work and uh, some of my favourite articles of you both, because I do read you, a couple of papers by you, uh, Lucia, uh, one with Chris Chambers, the past, present and future of registry reports. Very, very good paper. Um, another favourite of mine, Barriers and Solutions for Early Career Researchers in tacking, Tackling the Reproducibility Crisis in Cognitive Neuroscience. And uh, more recently, uh, which is nice to see inroads into undergraduate uh, courses, Embedding Open and Reproducible Science into Teaching, a Bank of Lesson Plans and Resources. And then Emma, um, one of my favourite papers by you is uh, a reproducible systematic map of research on the illusory truth effect. And of course, you have set a precedent, Emma, in being, we think, the first person to do uh, entire PhD thesis and registered reports. Can we confirm that that is a precedent? <laughs> um, we, we can confirm that we think it is. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, before we do go into the positives and negatives of sort of open science, if there are negatives, um, I just wanted to sort of ask one thing. I mean, after all, the podcast is the imposter syndrome and I have terrible imposter syndrome, particularly I have to say in, in open science. I mean, I do a lot of sort of advocating for it. I, I sort of co-run the, the Riot Science Club, but you guys, you're on the front line. You are actually practicing this stuff and publishing and uh, trying to advance the open science cause in practice. And, and because of that, you've become quite established figures in the open science community. And so my question is, I mean, do you both get imposter syndrome still? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I don't think it gets easier with relation to if you're a PhD or a postdoc for me, it depends on what I'm working on. So even for open science itself, so the actual implementing open research practices, I did feel that I wasn't doing enough or if I didn't know enough, I was an expert on some things, especially with regards to uh, Bayesian statistics and things like that. And I'm still learning. But to be fair, um, what really helped me is just recognizing that around 70 to 80 percent of the people and the peers around me feel the same way that I do. And that it's OK to ask for information and ask for help or collaborate with people because um, when it was the worst during the first years of my PhD, I thought that oh, I'm not going to be an imposter if I do everything myself, if I follow all the challenging things that I need to do during my PhD. So, you know, do not do not make your life simpler. You have to achieve something really, really uh, difficult to show that you're actually worthy of being here. And now I'm uh, the complete opposite. How do we make things easier? How do we, uh, you know? get the work done with more people involved, you know. I still get it, but I know how to manage it better. I think that's the answer. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with everything that, that Lucia has said there. I, I definitely feel imposter syndrome quite acutely. I think partly because this is my, my second career. So it's hard for me to kind of identify myself as, as an academic. 
you know, I came from industry. I did a year's master's conversion before I did my PhD. So I don't have that kind of breadth of knowledge and experience that other people might do who have come up through doing a psychology undergrad course. But I think like it's very easy to dwell on the negatives of that and forget that there are actually positives that come from taking that different career path. And that, you know, I I built up a a lot of skills that are applicable. One thing which I found really useful is that I put everything on a kind of draft CV so that everything I do, I write it down. Everything that I've planned to do, I write it in there. And then when I'm feeling, you know, like I need a little boost, I have a look at that and see, okay, they have actually achieved these things. Like these are concrete things that I've done. So however I'm feeling in my head, I can see these factual things that I've achieved. And I think that that, that really helps. But I totally agree with Lukia as well. And, you know, that many, many people are suffering and feeling like this. And, and I think it's really nice that you have this podcast and uh, having conversations with people about it because we need to to talk about it and acknowledge that other people are feeling the same way. It's funny you should mention what you do to sort of try and deal with your imposter syndrome. One thing that I find myself doing is actually avoiding Twitter. Mm. Twitter is a is a hugely um, brilliant tool to keep up to date with the literature and to see ongoing conversations by leaders in whatever field it is of your choice. But the double-edged sword is that, you know, you do feel as though a lot of other people are doing much better than you and they're getting grants in and they're getting published sort of every other day, it seems. So unfortunately, I do find myself avoiding it more and more. I don't know whether anybody else has sort of triggers like that or, or, or what do they do to, to deal with those and how to avoid them? No, but I mean, I, to- I totally agree about that as well. No, like over Christmas, I didn't look at Twitter because I just thought it's gonna it's gonna make me feel too bad. It is exactly what you said, Sam. It is like a double-edged sword because I've learned so much during my PhD from Twitter. Like so many times I've kind of been struggling with something and I kind of procrastinate by looking at Twitter. And then just by chance there's something there that can really help me, or there's you know a, a really interesting paper or conversation. But then it, it does also, you know, spike imposter syndrome in you. I think you have to remember that people like all social media are mainly posting about positive things that they are going to post like about when they, you know, get funding and when they get jobs, et cetera. And they're not going to post about the everyday mundane or the negative, you know, challenges that they're, they're going through. I agree with Emma. I remember I did post a few, um, let's not say complaints, but I did post about certain things that were challenging to me in regards to open research. And, you know, the, the response to that can be positive because a lot of people will say, oh, I was feeling the same way, but I didn't want to say it in public. Or it's going to be, this isn't a good image, so you shouldn't be you know, complaining because it's your choice to do this, things like that. But for me, um, I quit. I deleted my account completely, I think, last year or one year and a half ago. And the only thing I miss is... Uh, actually quite a small community of people I've met who are very um, honest and friendly and we can actually talk like uh, we would talk in person and have conversation about certain things around PhDs, academia, research and even just human things you know 
So this is the part I miss. I do not miss um, a lot of the conversations that are not really conversations where people just fight with each other without really listening to each other. And, you know, learning about new research, new methods, new techniques, things like this. There's always ways to do this without Twitter, in my opinion. So, you know, I have colleagues who are on Twitter. They will share something with me if something uh, pops up. Or uh, I can follow certain people that I know are doing work that I like, that I would like to know more about. So, you know, if you want, there are ways to to be updated to things. And, yeah, I really don't miss Twitter at the moment. Um, let's move on to talking about the positives and negatives of open science. But I want to focus on one uh, open science practice in particular, and that is registered reports, because you're both experts. So I'll exploit that fact that you're here. So for those who don't know, uh, and for those who would like a refresher, Emma, could you just give me a sort of a nice summary of what a registered report is? So a registered report is a type of research article where the writing and review occurs in two stages. So peer review of the study protocol, um, which includes the rationale, the methods, and the analysis plan, occurs before the research is conducted. And then the decision to publish is made before the study is run and is based on the importance of the research question and on the rigour of the methods. So authors receive an in-principle acceptance which is a commitment from the journal to publish the study irrespective of the results. And um, by making the decision results blind, registered reports take the focus off outcome-based decisions and provide a powerful antidote to publication bias. So what to you are the, the kind of main positives and, and the challenges that you think need to have more oxygen, more discussion around? And just to give you a disclaimer, I started with what I would call an open PhD in 2015. For me, it was still early in terms of training and access to resources. Of course, I'm um, in a very, very favorable position because I was working with um, a supervisor that already knew a lot of the things that I had to learn. But still, that wasn't enough, which tells me that for newcomers who do not have access to people or resources, this can be very, very challenging. Well, when I first started, I didn't know the things that I probably shouldn't be doing. Like I said before, maybe it has to do with the imposter syndrome, but I tried to make things as challenging and as novel as possible because I thought, okay, in PhD, you have to design new tasks, you have to come up with extremely interesting and novel ideas. Of course, that doesn't always fit with the idea of pre-registering studies, programming things yourself, learning about um, new ways of statistical analysis, and things didn't quite work for me quite well. It took a long time. So first of all, um, I still don't know the answer to this question. What is a good quality registration or what is a robust registration? Because it can be many things, it can take many forms. In the first try, I focused on methods reproducibility, I didn't focus on my hypothesis and my directional tests. So when it came to the write-up, it was quite hard for me to take bias away uh, when it came to the analysis. And I had to make a number of deviations uh, in my pre-registration. Some of the reasons for this, so these are the don'ts for new students who want to try this, is I, uh, let's say I had a very ambitious study with no prior literature, expectations or testing. So I had two novel tasks. I had a between groups design 
which required a lot and a lot of people to achieve the necessary power that I wanted. I didn't test my uh, tasks enough before I pre-registered, so I couldn't predict all the things that could have gone wrong. And I hadn't tried any of the analysis yet on pilot data or simulated data. And of course, I think my life would be much, much easier if maybe I would have said, it's okay if I can't pre-register. I know maybe this is not something that you want to hear, but if things don't go according to plan, you do have to think about the PhD students who have a specific timeline you know, in terms of time and money, of course, and you don't want to take a year without funding. So you have to stick to the plan. So if things don't work out, it's okay to do your study as rigorously as possible, be very reproducible in your write-up, be transparent, uh, maybe share your data. And then I think that should be enough for the first try. So I think I only have experience of writing one pre-registration before doing a registered report. And yeah, it didn't go great because I think for me, writing a registered report is easier in a way because you have to think through every aspect of it um, through to the end. So you don't sort of tie yourself up in, you know, in the pre-reg way. You say, okay, I'm going to do this, but you haven't thought about how you're actually going to do it. So I think sort of thinking back on it, for me, writing that pre-reg was almost harder than writing the registered report. Although registered reports have lots of, you know, other challenges as well. To be completely honest with you, Emma, I think if this study had gone under peer review, which of course is not always uh, great as well, so this is a a topic for a different podcast, um, a lot of the issues that I faced could have been picked up before I started recruiting participants which mm-hmm. for me in the end was, uh, I think, let me see, over 500 people. <gasps> so, uh, yeah, and I think that was a lot of data exclusions as well. So for, <laughs> it wasn't fun, you know. Um, no. But yeah, peer review would have definitely helped, especially with some of the task design issues, things like that. You know, this is making me think that that, that peer review in registered reports does help a bit with imposter syndrome as well. Because you you have you know experts in your area peer reviewing it before you run the study, and that really gives you a lot of confidence that you do know what you're doing. I mean, if you can imagine, we know that there are some problems sometimes with registering and then publishing because some reviewers do not like the idea that they can't change anything about the methods or they can't um, change the analysis, especially mm. if they're confirmatory. What will happen is. I would have a pre-registered study. So that's a flag for 2016-17 in terms of publication. And then you also have problems with it. So it's really, really not easy to publish. So that's one of the career level challenges, I guess, is that you've spent so much time on rigor and learning about transparency and all these methods and coding, all these things. And then you end up with a CV that's lacking compared to the one of your peers who may have done something that was already in the lab, uh, they got 60 participants or less than that, and they were done within six to 10 months. Luca, you, you mentioned a really important point, which is, I think, what most people have an anxiety about when, when doing open science, whether they practice it for years or whether they're new to it, is the, so the, the time commitment to it. Yeah, I mean, I experienced a lot of variance in the time that journals spent handling registered reports. 
And yeah, like you said, it's very important for the stage one manuscript because that's what's stopping you from conducting your research. You can't go ahead and, and do it until you have that in principle acceptance. My first registered report, it took six weeks from submission to receiving in principle acceptance. And that included one round of revisions as well. The second registered report took seven months to go through the same process. At the point that I submitted those registered reports, I had like no idea which timescale I was signing up to. Maybe it was something in between. And that makes it really, really hard to plan when you're doing a PhD or a postdoc or anything where you're working to short timescales. Um, and this is why I think that the scheduled review that is offered by PCI RRs is a real game changer for those working on short timescales. So PCI Registered Reports is a free, non-commercial platform that reviews and accepts registered reports from all research fields as preprints. And you then have the option to publish your final registered reports on the PCI platform, which is free, or you can decide to go down the more old school journal route and publish somewhere else. But the special thing about the platform that's relevant for this conversation is that you can schedule the review of your stage one manuscript. So you go through an editorial triage process and um, if the journal agree that they will theoretically um, proceed with your registered report, you agree with the journal when you're going to submit your stage one. And then while you're writing it, PCI acquires reviewers and schedules a review for an agreed date. So you then submit on that agreed date and you're going to receive your initial reviews of your stage one within a few days rather than within months. So that's pretty amazing. I think it's a, a game changer. Can I add something to the timelines? Because I, it took mm -hmm. me some time, but I found Manuscript Central for my registry report. And this is interesting. It was submitted in March of 2008 and it got published in June of 2020. So um, this is a long time. Stage one uh, took a long time. And sometimes my own colleagues ask me, why are you still advocating for registry reports when you had such a hard time actually uh, getting APA? And it's, you know, it's not a perfect solution for editorial variants, let's say variants in editorial decisions and handling systems. You still get the problems you get with normal manuscripts, right? What I would um, say is the major advantage for me is that when I finished the PhD, the pre-registered projects were not published. So I was writing up and I needed something for my CV. Of course, I didn't have the stage two register report, but I could still cite the stage one protocol that received IPA and is going to be published in, in a specific journal. So that gave me an advantage in terms of career prospects and funding applications. It's still not enough when we uh, look at the whole picture with the pre-registered projects, but it's still something tangible as an output that I can put on my CV, which was great. Um, so I don't regret it, actually. I think that's such an important point because it is a really concrete thing that you can put on your CV. If it wasn't a registered report, you could just, you know, say that it's in progress and mm -hmm. and you can't put a journal name by it either. So, exactly. yeah, really important. I, can, I worked in a lab that didn't have open science really on the agenda at all. It wasn't part of research routine practice. Uh, and I think that's a, another problem that's 
a time sink for most people is to try and either convince their colleagues to do it or um, their supervisor to sort of allow them to do things that are quite novel and out of the existing research routines. I don't know whether you two want to talk about that. Yeah, and I was also going to say that, so at Surrey, where I'm a postdoc now, um, we were having a conversation about open research recently. And um, to some of the PhD researchers there, working in an open way is totally normal for them. That's the way that they've been trained. And that's because that's how their supervisor works. So that's just how they work. Whereas other people who don't have a supervisor who, who works in that way, if they, want to, if they want to work in that way, they have to go ahead and learn about it themselves. Um, so I think, yeah, thinking back on, on my um, PhD, my um, main supervisor was supportive of me doing open research, but wasn't practicing it. Um, at that time himself and so going into my PhD I did look for an additional supervisor to give me support on that aspect of open research and that is definitely some advice that I would give to people looking to work in this way to to go and ask people for help because there are a lot of people out there who are very passionate about open research and who really really want to help I can't imagine how hard it is for people who do not work in a lab that does um, encompass open research practices because it's still challenging sometimes for us because the institution or other labs may not agree or, you know, you still get a bit of a backlash when it comes to publishing a certain way or funding. So for institutions and labs that do not encourage open research or actually are, you know, against it so maybe I can imagine a supervisor saying no 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 no, we're not going to do it this way because this is an effect that I've been showing through my career for the past 15 years there's no way I'm gonna risk you undermining my findings so I've heard about cases like this the only way for students to be able to uh, do open research in that environment without actually making them go through uh, distressful like um, confrontations with a supervisor or superiors because you have to remember there is a this um, power imbalance in these scenarios right so not everyone is going to be comfortable to have that confrontation um, because some people can't have conversations in 2022 we have to think about other ways to support them so through consortia through multi-site studies through uh, things like study swap where some people can can also help with data collection. And then um, maybe online uh, studies as well. I found that people are less hesitant if you ask to do like a large sample size study to achieve a certain um, power threshold, then they're fine if you don't spend that much money. So if you have alternative ways of data collection, but it is difficult, it's a difficult topic. There's no, I don't think there's one answer or solution to this, uh, unfortunately. The more widespread open research becomes across institutions, the easier it will be for uh, new students to, to experience that as well. I think we talked about this in one of our papers, but it's just funny to me that some of the problems started ages ago, but we ask early career researchers to make all these changes now. Um, I think the most ironic thing for me, if I, if I see a senior academic telling um, their postdocs and their PhD students to do all these new cool things that they write about on Twitter, but they're not willing to put in any work to get them the resources they need to get them help 
training. So they have to do everything themselves. And if something goes wrong, they're the first authors. So it's going to be on them. You need to help ECRs make that change because um, if you're against them, so if there's not any systemic change as well, and you don't make it easier for them, I don't think it's going to become as widespread as it needs to be. Yeah, I, I guess um, it just made me think about sort of one of my concerns about open research in the, the longer term, which is about kind of open research brain drain, um, you know, out, out of academia and the fact that you know, doing this work does take longer um, and all of the challenges associated with it. And it and it does potentially mean that our CVs are not up to those people that are working in faster, kind of more traditional ways. And that those people are then in the current incentive system, they're they're the ones that are, are gonna get the jobs. So yeah, it 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 does worry me that that ECRs are gonna put in a lot of work and learn about these things but then we're, we're not going to be here in a few years time you know we need people at every level of the system to to know about open research and support open research and if we're kind of being filtered out that's going to be a problem for the sustainability of this kind of change we do use to talk a lot about incentives for open research right that's like one big topic but for me, it's like, before we get to the incentives, can we actually work on the barriers? Because mm-hmm. we have that fundamental level of it's hard for a lot of people to do this properly. Adding to an already um, difficult PhD, it can be for many reasons. The area that you're studying, uh, funding, it just can be many things. Other people have families and do PhDs. You know, there's so many challenges already. And then you add something else. So there's barriers that we need to... We need to um, work on and then the incentives. But I guess sometimes when you talk about barriers, people will interpret it as, oh, this is a disadvantage or this is a negative of open research. Um, I don't see it that way. So I think it's just it's still something new for a lot of institutions. So we are working on how do we streamline this? How do we make it easier? How do we make it more accessible? So these are conversations that we should be having in addition to incentives for people who are doing great in open research, right? Because there's always going to be people who do great and have no challenges whatsoever. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, here's where I think I have to out myself as an academic imposter or or definitely as an outlier Um, because going into my PhD, it wasn't my intention to work in academia afterwards. So I just um, wanted to learn about how to conduct and how to understand research. So um, when I was conducting my PhD work, I wasn't motivated by tenure and I wasn't sort of thinking about publications or um, I, I didn't have a belief in a particular like efficacy of a treatment or, or some relationship between two variables. So my motivation was just about learning and getting closer to the truth, you know, as close as we can within current methods. So I I didn't approach my work with the kind of heart and soul of someone wanting a particular outcome. My goal was just to learn something and whatever the answer to my questions was, was, was cool with me. As long as the research was rigorous and informative, that's what I cared about. So Because I wasn't invested in an academic career, I was free to kind of be this anomaly in the system 
um, and to work in a rigorous way that, that I chose. And I, I was able to align my research practices with my values. But the fact that it was my sort of relative lack of academia-specific career ambition that helped to position me in a, the best place to work rigorously, I think is, is really sick because it's patently obvious that it should be the other way around, right? Those who are passionate about their topics and who want careers in academia should be the ones that have the freedom to work in this rigorous, open, and maybe slower way, and they shouldn't be penalised for it, or rather they, they should be rewarded for it. I just think it is fucked up, like, that, that someone that doesn't want to work in this area is a person who has like the freedom to kind of work in this way. And people that do want, to, you know, have to achieve these kind of things, they have to tick off certain things to carry on working in the system. Um, they're the ones that can't conduct their research that they really care about, that they're really passionate about in the way that, that it should be done. It, you sort of remind me of a professor going into retirement. <laughs> they, I'd like to do that. Well, in, in the sense that, they've had their career you know they've established it and so they can speak more freely and advise people more freely mm. and they have that privilege uh, to do that and it also reminds me of the early days of the open science where most of the the juicy goss about research was you heard you know over a you know a, a water cooler somewhere with talking to a professor and they said oh yeah we know we all know that that's kind of rubbish research we all know that that can't be reproduced and it was because they had that they had nothing to lose really um and that is sad i rem i reminded myself how i was thinking during my first year of the phd when you said rubbish research because um, I generally don't like extremes, but uh, a lot of the people I've met, let's just say in the open science community, they do are on the extreme end of um, open science. So they are, unless you do it all and you do it this way, you know, the research is not good or it's not of a high standard. But the problem is when I compared myself to my peers, and of course, that's always not great if you have an imposter syndrome going on, I did feel that it's not always necessary to go to an extra to the next level because a lot of the people I knew were actually very very decent scientists and they wanted to do good and then didn't have any QRPs at least on purpose or if they uh, did they could correct it you know they were open to um, uh, either a retraction or a correction or um, anything nothing fraudulent or let's say it's the word malevolent not sure so nothing was done on purpose, right? And I said to myself, okay, why do I have to go through all of this? If they get to publish fast, they get to do the research, it's actually quite good. The study design is good. You know, the only difference is they're not gonna share everything and they're not gonna pre-register. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with using p-values the normal way people do it, you know? So I had those moments of, what is the real reason I'm doing this? And just not going for the traditional route of um, publishing during a PhD. Yeah, I, I don't think that you can say like traditional that closed research is all bad and open research is all good. Like it's just the fact, I guess, that when things are open, we can look under the hood and investigate and and find find errors, and we can see we can see it basically. 
I think it's a general problem I found on uh, Twitter and uh, some circles as well, where you overgeneralize things and you make assumptions just based on how things look or sound. So, for example, if you say open research is always of high standard and is good quality, that is not a fact. If uh-huh. you say that um, research is not transparent is always bad, that's not a fact. So, you know, you have to actually go through the studies themselves. It's like the issue with the badges. For me, the open science, um, so the open science framework badges are useful because, did I say OSF badges? They're not actually for OSF. Anyway, so the badges are useful for me because I can skim through the literature and I can say, okay, they are sharing the data. That's great because I want to use something for one of my studies. Or this is pre-registered. Great. I want to see how they did it so I can learn more about how to pre-register my own studies. So it's a scanning tool for me. It's easier for me to identify studies that follow certain practices. What it doesn't tell me is if their registration was rigorous and robust. It doesn't tell me that they've documented their data well enough for me to reproduce the analysis. It doesn't give me any of that information. So I'm not going to make an assumption based on if a practice was followed or not. So I guess that's my point. But I've evolved into that. At first, I was a little bit more extreme in my views as well. So I thought, oh, it's pre-registered. Okay, it has to be great. <laughs> no, mm. it I think that's absolutely right, because there is definitely like a risk of people sort of just ticking boxes, right? Like they share some part of their data, uh, but actually, you know, there's no there's no um, code with it. So we can't understand it. Okay. We can't reuse it. But yes, I can, I can get a badge or I can tick off that I've done this. And the same with pre-registrations that, you know, maybe it's quite a vague pre-registration that doesn't actually constrain type one error, um, you know, the hypotheses are quite vague. Um, so it's not really doing the job of a pre-registration. But yes, I can say, yes, my work is pre-registered. Right? I was exactly the same as you, Lukia, is that in that I was quite uh, extreme. And that was before I realized just how powerful incentives are and the kind of incentive structure that we're in and the barriers there are to open science there is a cohort of those who for nefarious reasons practice questionable research practices but they occupy a sort of small area in the broader space i think a lot of people are motivated unfortunately by lack of bandwidth lack of time to do some open science stuff and to transition into open science which does require a bit of eff- a lot of effort and a lot of sort of time commitment but they're also incentivized to publish you know publish or perish or fund or famine and those are very very powerful so rather than just looking at their scholarly output try and think of why it is that they produce an output like this the one of the if not the main reason why i wanted to get you both on this podcast was because you have i think you've overcome quite considerable challenges maybe if you were talking talking to yourself say five years ago or six years ago or whatever or for upcoming researchers what would be the kind of practical advice that you would give them to if they wanted to practice open science uh, or sort of get engaged in the movement i just like to, just to mention this I do say quite a lot that sometimes we need to start at the earliest stage possible. And if we are going to do this probably in the future years to come, we do need to help undergraduate students as well 
with regards to understanding statistics and study design better. So for me, the hard part wasn't just the, the technical um, components of open research, where I have to code, program, the, the you know, data cleaning, whatever it is. It was just learning about all these new concepts which shouldn't really have been new to me, like manipulation checks, appropriate controls, positive controls, uh, power, effect sizes, sampling plans. I can't believe I did research methods for like two years in my undergrad and I didn't know anything about this. Um, so I think with regards to education um, during that level, we need to help students a little bit more. Then you go on a postgraduate degree because I did both the master's and the PhD. Nobody ever told me anything. These are things that you have to figure out on your own, you know? Nobody tells you these things. Nobody also tells you how the publishing system works. Unfortunately, for most people, you have to figure it out the painful way. You have to get that first rejection or that first, oh, uh, you are over the word limit email to actually realize this is how things work and this is how much time they take. Because when you first do a research plan for your PhD, if that's what uh, most people do, you're always, oh yeah, this is gonna take two months. And then eight months later, you're just still stuck on the same problem. So for me now, if I went back uh, in time, I would probably organize my time better and I would be more realistic and, and pragmatic in terms of my goals. So some of the things that I would recommend is actually starting with either a direct or indirect replication. So you have something to work with that you get help if you can from peers about analysis and programming. Don't try to do everything all at once open code, data, scripts, pre-registration, you know, just all of it at once on your first year. If you can't pre-register this study because it's too um, complicated, you know, you can't predict as many things as you would like, then it's okay, continue and do as much as you can in terms of open research. If you are planning to do a register report and for some reason the reviewers keep coming back to you with new revisions every time on your decision letter and it takes more than a year, then it's okay do a pre-registration and start data collection because you have to put priorities. If, for example, for me, it was quite hard because um, three years of funding were over and then I had to spend some time uh, with not much support um, writing up, right? So is it worth it? You have to find that balance between what's good for research and what's good for the researcher, especially if you're not in a privileged position, right? So if you have to think about, oh, okay, I had a backup so I could survive for uh, six to eight months or my supervisor can help me because they had funding. Not everyone does. So we have to keep these things um, at the back of our mind. Just practically now um, for pre-registrations, I think uh, one of the things I already mentioned is it's good to start, the same for register reports, of course, it's good to start with something that you already have information on or um, data on or code in your lab. So it could, it doesn't have to be a direct replication. It can be a replication and extension. Where can, you can still add your own ideas and you can have that novelty element because we have to remember, at least for the UK, a lot of people from other institutions have also told me for PhDs, for example, it's a requirement to have that novelty element. Uh, you have to outline all the contributions people have. So if you have too many collaborators, that can be a problem. If you only have replications, that can be a problem because what did you do? You just did exactly what other researchers have done. 
So there's considerations like this, but definitely I would start with something that's uh, what I would call solid. You know, there's code for it, there's methods, uh, have um, predictions for, it's not just all uh, open exploration. That's fine if you want to do it, but it just, it doesn't really fit sometimes with the open research model. Because um, pure exploration is absolutely fun and worth doing, but that's like a different part, right? Um, if you want to do a confirmatory register report, for example, I would suggest doing something with a solid foundation. Is there anything else? I'm trying to think. I would ask for help. I didn't ask for help <laughs> enough. I wanted to do it all, all on my own. Um, I would use online sources uh, that you don't have to pay for. Now, thankfully, there's uh, loads. There is, um, if you look at the paper for the Open Scholarship uh, and fourth, you can find so many resources on uh, open research practices that you don't have uh, to have a proper training course for. You just, you know, there's guidance available now. I didn't have much guidance in 2015. Now we're moving forward. So it's okay to ask for help. I think that's a really important point that you made just now is what I find with my kind of, just linking it back to imposter syndrome, I find that it's, I almost feel it's a failure when I ask somebody for help. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one thing that I really like about the open science sort of if you want to call it a movement but is that they do encourage as much team science collaboration as possible can i do a little promotion here sam go for it <laughs> so um it's not really a self-promotion but thinking about collaboration and my point about undergraduate training or postgraduate training one of the most enjoyable aspects of open research during my phd was the um, undergraduate consortium we do for reproducible under, uh, psychology projects where we work with two or three other universities in the UK and supervisors meet and design a study together with the students so they're learning about all the study design aspects right and power things like that and then you share the burden of data collection so it's university um, contributes all the students uh, collect data and then they write individual reports on uh, exploratory analysis they want to do. The project is pre-registered, so they do learn about that as well. And one person usually takes the lead if this is a PhD project. So during my year, I was the um, PhD lead. So that means I write up the whole study for my PhD. But for once, I got some help for collecting the data, reviewing the pre-registration, you know, things like that, doing the write-up. And it was, uh, it was the most fun I had, actually, when it comes to open research. So, Emma, you were nodding all the way through the um, little back and forth we had. Um, obviously, please comment back on, on what we discussed. But what I'm keen to know is sort of just how challenging it was doing a PhD of registered reports. And if anybody wants to follow in your footsteps, what would be your, your main advice? I think I would just basically agree with everything that Lucia and you have just said and kind of uh, echo it. I think maybe because I have a sort of a background in industry and in um, potentially like quite small companies that were very collaborative and where we did work in really, really strong teams, I came into my PhD maybe with a different mentality where I was open to asking for help and um, looking for collaborators. Um, 
I didn't sort of think that I could do everything myself and thought that you know, the best the best research will will you know find strength in numbers. Um, and so as an example of that, for my first registered report, this was a replication and I knew that I needed it to be well powered and to recruit a large sample size. And so I went on to study swap and had a look. And so study swap is a, is a, a platform where people post, um, I think it's called needs and have. So you know, they might need participants to um, for a study or might have participants for, for a study. And um, I, I went on there and found that there was a researcher in the US who had some participants that could potentially um, be available for my study and, um, and contacted them to, to say, you know, are you interested in working on this project? I, I mentioned that it would be a registered report um, and they said yes. And now we've collaborated together uh, for the rest of my PhD. And, and I think that that collaboration has been absolutely one of the best parts of my PhD. Um, the person that I contacted turned out to be Dan Simons, who is um, famous for the gorilla crossing the, street, the screen during the basketball game, demonstrating selective attention. And um, somewhat of a legend, but I didn't actually realise who... I was contacting at the time and I don't think that I would have been brave enough to contact him had I realised who he was. I haven't ever told Dan this. Um, so apologies, Dan, that I didn't realise who you were when I, when I sent that email to you. But yeah, I don't think I would have been brave enough to contact him. This was right in, at the beginning of my PhD, like a couple of months into it. Um, so I think the lesson there is definitely that, you know, to, to be brave and to reach out to people and ask for help. And doing this in a collaborative way is definitely the way forward. Can I just add um, something to that, uh, if that's okay, Emma? I think sometimes we put a lot of um, weight on what people should and shouldn't do. And, uh, for example, if I, if I generalise and I say, yeah, everyone should be brave, that's, yeah, that maybe they can, but... Maybe they can't or they don't want to, which is uh, absolutely fair to me. So this is where we talk about barriers and incentives. There should be more pressure on supervisors and institutions to actually help people not have to also deal with things like that. So yes, absolutely. But also if you have collaborators, you know they could help if you, because I'm sure a lot of supervisors, so if you have a network of people or students that could uh, help your PhD student or your postdoc, you have to reach out and say, oh, look, there's this person working in, I don't know, Bristol. They're doing working on this. Maybe you could work together on that analysis pipeline. Maybe they can help you with their Bayesian statistics. You know, it can also come from, uh, from the top. We don't always have to just try and do everything ourselves, you know. We could, yeah, but no. everyone is comfortable doing that, basically. Well, I mean, I was comfortable doing it that's why I'm saying I only did it out of naivety right because I didn't know what I was doing and I probably wouldn't have been comfortable doing it had I had I known but yeah I, I, I totally agree we need that support from our institutions I mean the reason that I was in that position in the first place was the fact that I knew that I needed a large sample size 
But at my institution, we didn't have any funding um, for to support, you know, participant recruiting. PhD students didn't act, automatically get any kind of funding. So then you're like, okay, if I want to collect a large sample size, I need to find a collaborator or I need to apply for funding. There's not there's not very much funding out there for these kind of small pots that a PhD student can get. Um, and if you're going to apply for that, then you're also going to spend more time, right? So then you have that, that added pressure of, of additional time there. So yeah, I, I totally agree that, that we need the support of institutions in this case. If I could, I'm just going to ask you both, like what is a, a one sentence advice to, um, to people who want to practice open science or one thing that you would want um, to change in open science or science generally? I think I would probably say um, that there isn't sort of one way to open science or open research well. There isn't, you know, a template for it. So think about the, the challenges for your particular research project and also about where you want to get to. And then secondly, I would say ask for help you know reach out to other people um, and ask them for help and also don't forget your library because there is lots of expertise in your library for um, advice for getting into open research especially for a PhD or a very short-term postdoc contract because don't forget that these are also very short um, I would first ask people to assess the feasibility of certain projects which is not something we talk about often. So assess whether it's feasible to do the, all the things that you want to do in the timeline. And if not, it's okay to adapt and take it one step at a time. Ask for help if you can, or support from your institution and try to um, do it your own way, actually. Just be you. We don't have to follow what every professor is doing and just try and achieve perfection because we're never going to get things done. Um, just do what you can and be transparent about it. Even if something goes wrong, because that's one of the things we didn't talk about, the imposter syndrome, if you, data sharing and being completely open makes things worse, right? If you are an imposter, everybody's going to know about it. It's okay, because if you're transparent about it, I think it's fine. People make mistakes. The only, the only reason is we usually don't know about it because they never see the light, the light of day, you know? So it's okay. Well, I think we're at time, guys. So thank you both very much for giving your time on a Friday evening. Um, I'm really, really happy to have had this chat with you, which I've wanted for a long time. Um, I guess enjoy your weekend and carry on doing what you're doing, because I think you're doing a superb job in promoting and pushing for open science and positive culture change. So thank you very much. Thank you very much thank for inviting you. us.